Hello, everyone. We are back with another episode of Movie Mentors, the quarantine edition. <laughs> I'm your host, Jeremy Boros, and today I'm thrilled to be interviewing the wildly creative, Emmy-winning production designer, Todd Felstead. Originally beginning his career as a fine artist, Todd made the move to LA in the early 2000s to pursue his filmmaking ambitions. Over the years, Todd has amassed a mind-blowing resume working on countless commercials, music videos, short films, features, and high-end television. He's worked alongside directors like Patty Jenkins, Joaquin Phoenix, and Greg Araki, and his designs have screened at major festivals like Cannes and Sundance and on platforms like HBO and Amazon. For his stellar work recreating the 1980s for the hit Netflix series Glow, Todd was honored with two Art Directors Guild Awards and the Primetime Emmy. Clearly, Todd is an unstoppable production designer and visionary force of nature. For some reason, production designers don't often get a platform to talk about their work, which makes this episode all the more special. So please, sit back and enjoy this conversation with Todd Felstead. Todd Felstead? Is that, is that an Icelandic name, by the way? It's, it's Norwegian, yeah. The Norwegian. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was in Iceland recently, and there's a lot of FJ combinations happening there, so. Yeah, in America, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> no, definitely not. It's confusing for us. Um, but yeah, Todd Felstead, thank you so much for spending the afternoon with me and chatting with me about, frankly, an area of the industry that I know very little about. And it just sort of surprises me, I think, how often people, audiences, and also people who work in, in the industry, like myself, sort of just take for granted what you do. <laughs> and you just kind of show up on a set and you're like, oh my God, looks amazing. Okay, we got to film. Okay, we got to go. And we don't really get to see or understand the full breadth and scope of your work. So I am, I'm so delighted to uh, speak with you and thanks for doing this. Oh, me too. I'm delighted to be able to clarify a little. I think uh, most of my friends and family, especially those who are not in the industry, have no idea what I do for a living. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's my goal here. I, of course, want to talk about your projects and about you and also just kind of do like a 101 in, in some regards, just so we can uh, help your family and me and other listeners understand the magic mm -hmm. of production design. So I guess a good place to start then would be to ask you if you could just put into your own words, what, what does a production designer do? When I've gotten this question in the past, I always had a really hard time with the synopsis of that because it's quite complicated and it uh, has a lot of layers. And depending on the project, those layers can increase exponentially. The generalization that I came up with finally is that a production designer, when you read a script, it's very clear in the script what the costume designer will be doing. It's very clear what the cinematographer will be doing. It's very clear what the director and the actors will do. Everything that does not involve what the actors are wearing or saying or doing themselves is in some way directly or indirectly the production designer's responsibility. So where they're at, what they're sitting on, what the tone of the scene is visually, what they're holding in their hand, anything other than the costuming and the dialogue, in some way we directly have to, to take care of. In a way, I like to call it visual direction, because everything that you look at on the screen has been touched by a production designer in some way or another. Props, our, our locations, our builds, the graphics, 
Um, even sometimes visual effects fall under the rubric of production design because you have to have somebody to do quality control and to kind of marry the visual effects with the practical effects. There always has to be that person who's keeping an eye on every inch of the frame to ensure that what the final product is that the audience takes in is, is cohesive, is properly branded. That's such an interesting way to look at it and an interesting verb to use uh, of brand. Do you find that that has become more of a pressing priority these days than maybe in the past? To a degree. I mean, you know, when we're looking at the, the auteur films of the 60s and the 70s and French New Wave or, or whatnot, you're not looking at necessarily branding something you don't think. But in reality, you are. You still are. It's, it's just a newer term. Um, I think the word the word brand tends to call to mind economics and um, you know how do you sell a project? But in reality, what I mean by that is that when you take on a project, what the project looks like in every way, what it feels like, everything from the color to the texture of, of uh, curtains in the background, a, a lamp placed in the right place, all of these things give the audience awareness of who the character is and what they're going through. For example, if you're in a character's bedroom for the first time, you may see things that you never expected to see about them. You may not even fully take them in, but they're there and they're adding to the texture and the fabric of what you're understanding the character to be. And that's my favorite part of the job is how do you amplify what the actor is doing with the writing and how the director is you know, putting the scene together. How do you amplify those things visually so that the clarity is even more so there for the audience without them having to really work for that part of it. You know, you want the audience to work, you want them to, to feel engaged, but you don't want them to feel confused or you don't want them to feel like things are moving so quickly they can't keep up. And a lot of the production designer's job is to fill in those gaps, you know, to give additional backstory, to give additional texture and meaning uh, to whatever scene you're in. You're sort of like the god of the subconscious uh, <laughs> experience for us. Um, so one of the things I like to do on this podcast is go back a little bit and, and learn about where you started and how you got to where you are today. When I was reading about you, I got the sense that you're, you're from the Southeast, North Carolina, maybe. It also says that you, you were part of this 90s Southeast art scene and movement. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing, how it impacted you and what that 90s Southeast art scene was all about. Okay, um, so basically, um, well, I was born in Ohio, um, but I moved to North Carolina with my family when I was probably nine, I think, eight, nine, somewhere in there, um, and grew up there, went to high school there, moved away, went, lived in a couple places during various school adventures, and then came back to North Carolina afterwards to open a gallery and kind of, kind of work in the city and the arts. I found that my hometown was a little lacking in what I would call contemporary fine art, there was a lot of more traditional uh, fine art going on, you know, landscape paintings and portraits and whatnot, but there wasn't a big deep dive into anything contemporary or modern. So I really wanted to kind of pull what I had learned in other places I'd lived, like Atlanta, back into my hometown and kind of expand upon it and see if there was an audience for it. And there was, which was very exciting. Um, obviously, it was a much younger audience and uh, we were up against, you know, <laughs> um, no funding for this type of thing. It was, it was always... DIY, you know, every time. Um, but the 90s Southeast fine art scene was definitely something that was exciting for uh, everyone in the music world and the visual art world and the small growing film world there because it 
was exploring themes that, of course, were not explored by the more traditional art mediums at the time. Discussions of race, of sexuality, things that typically are not found in a landscape painting. Um, (laughs) There was was a big drive to kind of tell our stories, I think, and to kind of get that out there. And and, um, I had the, the good fortune of knowing a lot of very talented people in that world who really just kind of laid their their hearts on the line and, you know, expose their, their deepest, darkest secrets just in order to tell a story and, and find empathy with others and, and provide a sense of, uh, of understanding. And that was a very exciting time because, you know, in the 90s, you know, you had the grunge music movement and you, there, you had hip hop coming into fruition fully and Soderbergh out there making movies and like so many different independent directors from that time period were making films in their communities. So, I saw a little of that happening in mine, and I saw it as very exciting. Wait, we can put all of us together and make a movie? Yeah, let's do that. You know, that it was like, you know, it was uh, more than a challenge. It was like an inspiration. I was like, wow, we can like, she can sing, and he plays violin, and he's a puppeteer, and why don't we just all put this together and make a project? Um, was that Firefly Man? <laughs> yes, exactly. That was Firefly Man. It kind of became a community arts project. It was really fun. It's something I don't think that could happen nowadays, and certainly not in Los Angeles. yeah well you can feel the love in that short if people are able to find it it blends puppetry with i guess that was computer generated animation great uh music and it's it scared me it's it's a scary (laughs) sort of unsettling story but there's also great beauty to it which eventually led to the short getting into telluride which yeah. is very impressive. That was mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, uh, but then you—that was the catalyst that brought you out to LA and made you think, you know, I really enjoy being a film collaborator, and I want to focus on this. Yes, it's funny. It's you know the old myth that um, you just make one project, one film, one play, one you know whatever it is, and you've got the bug. That is completely true. I made one short film and I was like, I'm not really hireable to do anything else. I have to do this. This is what I have to do now. I have to make films. And I had it in my head that uh, I would move out to Los Angeles and become a big director (laughs) because that's what we all think initially is I'm going to direct a bunch of stuff. And you don't realize that that's actually a very long, laborious, complicated process. And it's also a crapshoot. There's people out there who can probably direct circles around some of the more famous directors who will never get a chance because they're not in the right place at the right time. So once I kind of saw the reality of that, I'd been out here a few years, I realized, okay, my expectations were maybe unrealistic and I need to take on the things that I know I can do where I can be of service to someone else's project and actually bring something to it that they may not have brought to it themselves. And that will be my version of directing and, and, uh, and bringing my creative process to film. For sure, um, my first uh, ventures out here were random you know it was like I got a storyboarding gig and then I got a a short film that they let me art direct and then I became a lead man on a feature that eventually turned into art director because there was no crew and there were so few of us working on it within a couple of years I had enough credits to actually push towards becoming a production designer and a lot of that again was being in the right place at the right time you just never know and saying yes saying yes all the time I said yes to things that paid nothing paid fifty dollars a day or whatever it was at the time just to get the experience and to, and to learn. Is it common, since it is such a craft-based and a sort of apprentice-based career, that do, do a lot of production designers have like a mentor and they work in 
like a, a firm with them for a while and then go out on their own? I think it's, it's different for everybody. I think there's so many different versions of that journey for sure. There are people who have been like high, highly, incredibly gifted art directors who are so capable in so many different things that are both technical and creative and they spend their entire lives as an art director and never become a production designer, even though they want to, just because that's what the way it sometimes works. I like to say that in a lot of ways, the production designer is the director of the art department, and then the art director is the first AD. And the first AD on a project keeps it all together. There's a schedule, there's a thing, they, they, they manage every shot, they're completely in charge of set but the director is uh, almost more esoteric in a way. It's they're crafting and, and carefully sculpting things. And that's kind of the, the difference is that the production designer uh, in a way is kind of a dreamy role. It's more um, intangible almost, but uh, there are certain things that come along with it for sure. I mean, you're picking this and you're selecting that and you're choosing that, but it's not as more nuanced, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that really helps. That was one of my main questions was the difference between art director and production designer. It sounds sort of like being a creative producer and being a line producer. One is more nuts and bolts, kind of keeping us on schedule, on budget, and the other is more conceptual. Um, It's true. It sounds like that's Although to to answer your original question, um, many people do start as art directors and become production designers. Some people start as set decorators and they become production designers. I do think that the approach that I have is a little bit unique and that I don't hear of a lot of production designers coming from the fine art world. I think what appealed to people to hire me was the idea that I had had my head wrapped around the things that were more intangible and esoteric. I think that excited them because they knew that I wasn't going to approach it from a nuts and bolts way necessarily, although there's a lot of nuts and bolts, (laughs) um, that I was going to approach it more as an artist. I think that excited them. So I had a lot of opportunities I might not have had otherwise. Should aspiring production designers that are maybe not so good at math and drafting be concerned? I think probably the most important thing for production designers, for aspiring production designers, would be to become incredibly aware of film. I remember once hearing uh, an interview with Tarantino where they said, you know, where did you go to school? And he got annoyed and he said, I worked at a video store for a decade. <laughs> it's, but it's true. It's like the way to really educate yourself is to watch films and think about, and television series, obviously, and think about while watching, is that a real set? Is that a build? Is that a location? Who made that? Is that, you know, was that printed? Was that real? Is that an object that was built or was it found? Like, just pay attention to those details and that process will start working itself out. I wouldn't shy away from art classes. You definitely want to know how to draw. You have to quickly be able to work out with a director, a cinematographer, God knows who, there's so many people you interact with, pretty much every department. You have to be able to quickly work out what your ideas are, what their ideas are, how to merge them, how they may or may not work out. And being able to sketch that is crucial. Um, So I would say drawing classes, painting, sculpture, these kind of things only help. The technical part of it is often managed by the art director and the set designer. And the set designer gets the bulk of that. They're on a computer all day long drafting. And they're taking the concepts the designer comes up with that the art director brings into actuality, measurements, you know, like an actual, this is now a blueprint. And then that blueprint is then turned into build drawings by the set designer. So really it's 
it's a long process. Um, but the production designer is one of the first people brought into a project, sometimes even before the directors in television, for example, in order to start working with the writer to get that broad sense first. That's the big thing. Like, what broadly are we doing here? Wow. I had no idea. First of all, you blew my mind that a set designer is not a production designer. <laughs> yeah. And, and, then, and then you it blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. And then you blew my mind that a lot of times production designers are on before the director in television. I mean, it's because I, I would assume the, the creator, the showrunner, it's really their vision that yes. is the most important. And a, but if we're talking about film, that probably wouldn't be the case, yeah. right? Because it's yeah. so much a singular director's vision in that, in that sense. Walk us through the process of why you choose certain things and you get the script, what happens first? Very early on, pretty much anything that came my way, I, as long as it wasn't like, you know, crazy or porn or something, <laughs> like if pretty much anything, I would take it on simply to learn. But then after I got to the point where I could be a little bit more choosy, I tried to stay with projects that had some kind of social meaning that actually I could feel a sense of responsibility towards. I, I know that sounds crazy because we're not talking about documentaries, but... No, not at all. I, I wouldn't necessarily want to do a project that was just glorifying gun violence. You know, like, although I can enjoy that as an audience member sometimes, I don't know if I could get behind that fully as a designer because it's something I don't agree with. So I would try to choose things that were a little bit more, I guess, aware socially. If it was a story about two teen runaways, like this project I did Little Birds that I absolutely loved, it was a beautiful script. And that, that meant something. I understood that. I was almost a teen runaway. You know, like I, I could relate to that. I could relate to that being dissatisfied with home and wanting to get out and find yourself in the world, but then also the dangers of that. That was something I could, I could find myself relating to. Or working with Greg Araki early on, like he... You know, he's somebody that I related to as a gay teen because I couldn't believe the projects he was making and that they were actually getting theatrical releases. And, you know, I saw Mysterious Skin and my mind was blown. And then I saw some of his more fun, you know, apocalyptic teen romance stuff that was hilarious. And that, that's something that drew me. I was like, I, I feel like gay people are not represented properly in the media. They never have been. We're just starting to get there. Um, so anything like that drew my attention. Anything that held up women has always been something that's really important to me because I've, you know, all my life watched sexism take its toll on those I know. And of course, anything that involved racial justice was also very compelling to me. Those things always drew me. If I ever had a chance to work on something like that, it didn't matter if something else paid better, I would jump at the chance because I felt like this is really why I'm here is to do storytelling. It's not, you know, to get rich. No, it, it's, it's the heart, the soul the karma, the, the mission, those are the things that really matter. Hopefully most people know that. But a lot of the projects that you've worked on, particularly with Greg, have really done a lot to um, put LGBTQ plus stories front and center. So they're not just peripheral characters, comedic relief and whatnot, and um, giving them authenticity. So first of all, that's amazing. And when when and how did you connect with Greg? I've been doing some independent film for about, oh, I guess about two or three years. Uh, I had graduated from like still photography, shorts, commercials, et cetera, into some, some features. And um, 
I had met a producer by the name of Paulina Hatupi, amazing woman. And uh, she came to me and said, I'm doing Greg Recchi's next feature and he's looking for a designer. And I was like, I will do anything. <laughs> like, let me know how I can help. I will like, I'll sweep the floor. I love that guy's stuff. He's genius. And she's like, okay, well, that's a little much, but you know, I'll put together some imagery. So I put together some imagery. I read the script. It was hilarious. Kaboom. This was like, I guess, 2007, I believe. But uh, I read it was hilarious. It was scary. It was like sexy. It was all the things that Greg is known for. And it was kind of a, I don't want to say a comeback for him because he never really went anywhere, but it was the first time he had really approached his own concepts again in like two or three films. Like he did a stoner comedy with Anna Ferris that was funny. I mean, he didn't write it, but it was really funny. Um, and then he had done a Mysterious Skin, which was quite serious. And so he came back to this. And I think his excitement about getting to come back to his own themes made him just like this playful kid that was so compelling to me. It like really taught me a lot about how a director, producer can bring about a certain tone during the filmmaking that everybody feels there's a playfulness that you don't find in a lot of other projects that is just part of Greg's personality. And that was the most impactful thing that I learned as a young production designer is you've got to remember to have fun and you've got to remember to make sure everybody around you is having fun. And I got that from Greg. So I, I owe him that forever. Is the foundation of that and is what you would hope for and always expect from a director production designer relationship is I guess, a sense of freedom and play in every aspect of the process? Yes, that's, it's funny you ask that because the first project we did together, Kaboom, you know, we didn't know each other and this is extremely important to him that this comes out right. So having a production designer who wasn't that well known yet, who hadn't really taken on much, certainly not um, an auteur's project, I'm sure it was daunting for him, it was daunting for me. What was so fascinating about that is that he very, very much just kind of laid bare any things that he hated. Like, these are things I hate. I don't want to see this. Um, these are things that I love. I would love to see this. And we had these kind of like tete-a-tete, just kind of uh, me asking like, well, what do you think this character listens to? What's her favorite music? What do you think this character's favorite color is? Just simple things like that. And then we finally, after the, I'd say like a month of discussions during prep and pulling things together, boiled it down to, I want this project to look like a combination between Scooby-Doo and Twin Peaks. <laughs> and I was like, well, really, we could have like not had any of these conversations and just gone there and we would have had it. That's, and we laughed about that for the next couple of projects. It was like, that's, that's a... Uh, kind of Greg's motif in general. It's Scooby-Doo meets Twin Peaks. You do, you have to do the same investigative work like an actor would do, because I'm an actor, that's where I operate from. So you have to think about where did this person grow up? What music were they listening to when they were 10 years old? So what are, what are some of the things you have found that are most useful in um, creating a character's world? It's gotta be an easy read. It's gotta be something that when you you know, see a character walk across a room into another room, and that's the only time you see that room, whatever is in there that will give us some definition and some extra elaborate ele you know, element that tells us more about the character has to be a quick read. It has to be easy. It has to be simple. It has to be economic. You know, and say a half-hour comedy, so many things are happening, so many scenes, so many 
the last thing you need to do is have somebody going, wait, what was that? Was that a picture on their wall? Was that of their mom? And like, you don't want them guessing because the guesswork for my department is bad. The guesswork in other elements, like the plot, sure, you want them <laughs> guessing all the time. In my department, it needs to be clear. You need to be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Of course, that's what her office looks like because that's her character. Like when I think of Ulysses' room in Now Apocalypse, I mean, that's such a specific room and just the the pictures you put behind his bed that you see you know several times they're so illuminating into who this guy is what he um, thinks about yeah yeah what he what he thinks about so you design something like that and then you go to your set decorators and you ask them to go find these things and source these things and you get to have the final say over what goes into every space is that right Pretty much, yeah. I think the um, it's funny because the the collaborative effort that you make with your art director in a lot of ways is the same as you would with like an architect, and then the the set decorator is almost more like a writer in a way, because I mean, yes, they're they're tasked with finding all of these things, but also they have to have an incredible eye for how to, for example, merge all of the things in a room into a palette, into a a specific and cohesive look that doesn't like say overpower because there's something over in this corner that draws your attention too much. And, or there's a, a, a portrait of somebody that's not an actor right behind the actor. And now you're looking at that person instead of the actor. Like, there's a lot of little rules that we go by and, you know, little pieces of wisdom that we pass on to one another through project to project. But in general, the idea is that, the production designer works out with the director and the writer and producers. How do you see this? This is how I see it. Here's some lookbook information. Here's some references. Here are the things I pulled from the script that I thought were important. And once they're like, yeah, that's it. Or, well, it's that, but it's also a little of this. You, I do all of that negotiation first. And then I go back to the set decorator, the art director, the set designer, and say, okay, here's what they want. Here's what it needs to do. And here's what I would like to add so that they get a little bit more than they even asked for, that they can feel free to pull off of set if they don't want it. But it's, it's like a cherry on top. I like to always give them that extra cherry on top. They might say, I hate cherry. Fine, take it away. But it's much easier to take it away than to add it at the last minute. So we always try to give them a little more than they want. And I have to work that out with the set decorator because the set decorator has the... <laughs> unenviable task of the last looks before camera comes up. You know, they're shuffling stuff around. They're putting the lamp here. They're doing this. And then in comes the director. Oh, actually, I want to shoot this scene this way. Can we flip this? And that's when, you know, you kind of have to, okay, be careful because it's not, this is a menu. This is a recipe. It's not just a stock list. You've got to be careful not to just shuffle all the ingredients around. And next thing you know, your cake's going to fall. You know, you got to make sure that this is still a recipe. So in a lot of ways, I'm like the negotiator and the psychiatrist. <laughs> and then the set decorator ends up doing a lot of the actual visual selection. Of course, I will do the final say. Yes, I like this. No, I don't like that. That's too loud, whatever. But the set decorator gets tasked with a lot of the actual finding of objects and making of objects. And then the set designer and the art director get tasked with the builds. Anything gets built or painted or wallpapered or any of that. If you were working with a new, fresh director, what would be something you would just really, really love for them to understand about what you do? Time. 
<laughs> because the hardest thing about the art department in general, which you know, I'm talking props, graphics, everything, all of it, every bit of the art department, is if we have enough time, we can make anything. You know, we call it world building. It's world building. You're creating an entire world for this story to take place in. But if you only have a few days to pull off something, it's going to be this good. If you have two weeks, maybe it's going to be this good. If you have six weeks, you know, you can build almost anything. I've often joked that uh, <laughs> if you asked an architect to build a house and then an uh, you know, interior decorator to come in and decorate it in three weeks, they'd laugh at you. <laughs> you're insane it's never going to happen but we're asked to do this a lot so the only thing that i am adamant about with new directors when they come in is that they understand what they're asking for because you know a really big ask can throw off all the departments everybody's scrambling in and freaking out all over a simple thing that could have been negotiated to be something that wasn't that big of a problem now there are times when those directors are right and it will be better and we've got to all scramble and make it happen it's a brilliant idea but, you know, understanding that each thing we do takes a little bit amount of time and effort and love and collaboration. If they understand that, which most of them do, then you're fine. At what stage are, are you really able to talk with DPs and gaffers to make sure that what they're doing is enhancing what, what you have created? It depends on the project. I would say on features, yes. On features, like for example, in working with Greg, Sandra was always involved early enough that we could go over like, hey, like in this party scene, I really want to do a projection on that wall, but how is that going to affect your lighting? And like, is that, you know, I try not to ever ask them to do anything for me, but they do have a list of things they're going to need from us. They often will need specific practical lights and like, please avoid white lampshades because you know, that's too bright. And there, there's all these little like, you know, general rules and, and, and a bag of tricks that every DP has. Typically the DP, it comes after. The production designer is working out all of this stuff um, prior with the producers, the writers, the directors, if they're on yet, the television certainly. And then the DP comes in and tweaks. And often you have to think like a DP, like, okay, they may want to look out this window, so we need something more than just a tree. We need to do like a giant you know, trans light, which is a giant photograph that you backlight because they may be in this room 50 times over the course of the series and we don't want to be putting digital replacement in every window. So there's certain things you have to think about for them before they get there. And then when they get there, they're going to have their ideas that you didn't see coming. On this last season of GLOW, I worked with the DP. Um, he and his gaffer, Christy, really nice guy had a lot of ideas for the casino that were built in lighting, which were great ideas that I, I was dying to do them, but we also had a budget, you know? So there's the negotiation of, uh, can that come out of your budget a little? And can this go into my budget? And, you know, there's always that negotiation and that collaborative effort that centers around how much time do we have? How much money do we have? How many people do we have? <laughs> Unfortunately, that all plays into it. Yeah, of course. Well, let's let's talk about that for a second. Uh, the third season of Glow and what you just mentioned. You decided that for those shots through the window of seeing the Vegas Strip, that you wanted oh, yeah. to do that with actual lights. You know, do a miniature, do practical, which is so rare today. Mm, yes. And I'll tell you what. I, I want your opinion on this. Whenever I see films that utilize that, or I watch movies that were made before like 1996 
man, it just feels different. And I don't, I can't decide whether it's the slight um, feeling of artifice that evokes a certain charm to what you watch as a viewer, or if it just looks more real than what they're capable of doing with CGI. What's your take on it? Well, I've always felt that practical effects were more in our hindbrain real. You know, we experience them as real. They are tangible physical objects. So our response to them is completely different, whether we are aware of it or not. And I have a really great example of the proof in that concept, which is a friend of mine's daughter, when she was about three or four, saw The Empire Strikes Back for the first time. She had already seen the three Star Wars films where everything was shot on a green stage, a green screen, and everything was like a sound stage, and it was all CG. Everything was CG, including Yoda. So she's watching The Empire Strikes Back, and she spins around to her dad, who's a director, by the way, and says, Dad, you didn't tell me Yoda was real. (laughs) And I've always carried that with me because it was like even a child knows the difference between something that's puppeteered and interacting with the other characters and something that's CG. At three, four years old, it was completely clear to her. So to me, that, that told me that whether we're aware of it or not, our, our response to things that are not completely real is completely different from those things that are. And not to take away from the immense artistry of CG and matte painters and, oh my God, these, these people are incredible. But at a certain point, I think we do kind of glaze over sometimes in in films and TV shows where there's so much of it that nothing feels real anymore. And we start to just hang their slack jaw (laughs) watching this stuff come at us. That seems to be starting to die down a little bit, finally. I think people are starting to lean more into the real again, like what they did with The Mandalorian. I mean, so much of that was practical. And you could feel it. it. It feels fantastic. It feels legit. With the decision to do the miniatures for Glow Season 3, though, I think it was a combination of the anxiety that the audience was excited about going to Vegas in our third season, but they were never going to go to Vegas because Vegas is all the strip and neon. That doesn't exist anymore. Now it's all giant flat screens. It's kind of ugly. And we've lost a lot of the charm that was there. So it was a combination of not wanting the audience to feel that they were missing that and trying not to create a horrible problem for post where every time we're in Bash's penthouse, somebody's crossing the frame where we can't see the window or they're sitting on the couch and they have to replace the frame. That would have been a nightmare and extremely expensive, especially for a half-hour comedy. So instead, we spent a little bit of money to do it one time, and now it's in every shot. And it was up to the DP and the gaffer to kind of balance out what the you know Mini World Studios or guys who made this created these beautiful models, but they weren't really the same language that their lights are using and that their technical elements are using. So there, there was a certain amount of like shuffling to make it work. But once that was over, it became a boon for the, for the actual uh, production to be able to continue. Okay, let's move over here now. Let's move over here. They didn't have to think about it as much. That's really what you want in a TV show is to just be able to go about your day, you know, keep going. You don't have to stop because, oh no, we can't shoot it that way because then it'll add problems for post. Like you just want to be able to keep going. Yeah. So in this sense, it was both an economic and efficiency plus to to go this route. Normally, it's a detriment uh, these days. But how have you had to modify 
and what is gained and what is lost with everything going digital? I mean, is it enjoyable for you to work with visual effects people on creating these digital backgrounds? Are you really involved with that or do they sort of take over? It really depends on the project, but uh, generally nowadays, the post-production process I'm not involved in. I will be sent uh, rough cuts of episodes. Um, there's usually an, an internal system where things are posted. It's basically the same as dailies, and you'll get early cuts of episodes and whatnot. That's really more for things like, oh, hey, guys, it's the 80s, and I see a cell phone tower in the background. Let's get rid of that. You know, it's really more as a safety checkpoint. You, know, you mm. want somebody who's so used to looking at that frame that you're You've been spending weeks and weeks color timing. You may not have noticed it. So it's really more of a safety thing. But um, for sure, uh, some projects I'm very involved in in uh, what will be on screen um, that's created in post or by digital effects. For the show I just did for Marvel, it was the first time we see these two characters ever in a film or TV show. And so every little detail of how we were going to present them, what their powers were, what the effects of their powers were, the results of their powers were, et cetera, all had to be figured out in meetings. And I was in all those meetings. You know, Often there was a, a suggestion that it would go this direction and the showrunner would say, oh, that's kind of too big. You know, We don't want it to be like that. We want it to be more intimate. And you know, they don't put up their hands when they're doing magic powers. They just think it. You know? So, okay, how do we show that then without them having to be animated. And what is the effect of that? What is the result? So I'd be involved in tests of this thing has to catch on fire. What will that look like? Oh, it'll look like this. Okay. It'll be partially digital fire. It'll burn a little bit on real time on the set, but then we get to put it out really quick and the rest is in post. So there's definitely a, um, a little bit of overlap there. So these additional abilities of world building for you have been exciting, but what are some of the other changes you've seen over the last 10 years as a production designer for better or for worse? I would say probably the thing that is truest about our department during especially television is that things have moved faster. The, the scheduling of it is very different than it used to be. I used to get a, you know, a script for a feature. It's, you know, there it all is. There's your blueprint. You know what you're doing. Now I'm working more in high-end television and I will, I will get a script. We'll be in the middle of shooting it. I'll get a new script. Oh, and the new director's here for that. Oh, wait, and now here's the next script after that. And that director's here, and they need to go scouting. So when I'm on a television show, like I often will get texts from friends, are you dead? Like, what's going on? Because I'll be working from the second I wake up to the second I go to sleep, and sometimes on weekends. It's much, much more complicated than it used to be. Often on TV shows now, you may have eight or 10 directors for a season, You may have a couple of DPs, you have two different AD teams, you only have one designer, and that person gets pretty overwhelmed at times. But all you have to do is look behind you at that beautiful, shining Emmy, and and all the suffering goes away. (laughs) Oh, totally. (laughs) Yes, yes. No, that is... for Emmys. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Well, I am just curious to know, going back into some of those early days and, and advice that you would have for up-and-coming designers, like what are some of the common traps or pitfalls you see younger designers making, common mistakes, I guess? And do you have any sort of hacks, like things that, things that you had to figure out on your journey that you're like, oh my God, I've been doing it the wrong way this whole time and this is what I'm going <laughs> to do in these situations now? Anything like that? 
Yeah, there's a few of those for sure. I would say uh, probably the, the most important thing to know if you're wanting to become a production designer is that it's not about you. It's not even a little bit about you. It's completely about the project. It's about the story, the characters, and everything supports that. You literally don't matter. Your ideas can matter. Some of the things that you bring to the table can matter, but it's not about you. And so primarily, I think that's something that's hard to swallow for a lot of creative types and for artists in general, is that you have to learn to throw away your ego. You have to throw away um, your ideas about how things should be and make it more about how can you serve the project and how can you bring the project everything that it needs and maybe a little more without getting in its way. You tend to need to have to just kind of say yes to a lot of things you may not normally want to say yes to just so that you can learn, just so that you can grow. Um, you may hate the commercial you work on. You may even hate the product you're working on, but you will learn something about the way they shoot it from that director if you pay attention. You will learn something about cinematography if you listen to what the cinematographer is doing with this lens for this moment. Each of those things build and build and build. And over time, you actually start to really understand shortcuts. You start to understand ways to work around problems or the problem of, say, approvals. That's a big problem for uh, art department and costumes too, where there's so many people who have ideas about that. Like, what is she going to wear in this scene? Next thing you know, you've got six executives and two producers, and you've got the director and the DP. And the costume designer's like, oh my God, like, help me. <laughs> that happens to art department as well. And one thing I've learned that's a nice little hack is if you are worried that the creatives that you're dealing with are indecisive or that they don't agree, because that happens sometimes, they don't agree and you're in the middle, you give them an option you know they can hate. And it's something I learned from a graphic designer once. Lay out their four or five options they want. The one you like, spend some time on it, get it right. And then do another couple that you like that you could live with, but do one or two that they hate. You know they're <laughs> going to hate so that they have something to respond to. It's reverse psychology, 100%. But you have to do it because otherwise if you give them five things they like, oh no. Then, you know, you've, you've really nowhere to make a decision. That's genius. That's so <laughs> genius. I'm just going to start doing that in like other aspects of my life. <laughs> you know, because, yeah, I mean, the bureaucracy of so many things and you just wind up getting stuck in the mud over something that either like the majority of the decisions will both be good. You know, they'll all be good in some way, shape, or form. It just becomes a sort of ego thing. But if you basically force them to say no to something, then they feel like they've done their job, and then you can yes. move on. That and they need so that. Great. They need that. Like, nobody wants to be presented with, everything's perfect, you're not necessary. You know, what they want to be presented with is, okay, you're here to approve this and make a decision. Here's something to hate. Here's something to love. Here's something to debate. But don't give them a bunch of stuff they're going to love or God knows, don't ever give them stuff that you hate, you know, <laughs> that you know you would never want to do. Right. You got to be really careful there too, because that can backfire. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. There's definitely a little, I mean, I hate to say manipulation, but there is to a degree a bit of manipulation because you are on a schedule, you're on a budget. And if people start getting crazy haywire ideas at the last minute, everything falls apart. So you have to control that effort and you have to be very, um, while you're collaborating, you have to be the adult in the situation so that the director can be a kid. They should be a kid in that situation. They should be able to be like, I don't like that. I like that. I want to go here now. 
they should be able to do that. Are there any other hacks, by the way? Any other little tips or tricks you've collected? Um, I would say probably the, the most effective way to get into someone's head about what it is they want to see, particularly a director or producer or showrunner, is to present your version of how you see it and be honest. You know, don't, uh, don't try to guess necessarily what they're looking for if you don't know yet. Don't try to go with what's already been seen a million times. Like literally go with what you feel in that moment. That's why they've hired you. They've hired you to come up with the visuals. Bring it from your heart. Bring it from your head. Make sure it's what you actually want and what you saw when you read the script. That way you've started a dialogue. It may be completely wrong, but they're able to say, well, that's not really where I was headed. I was wanting it to be more this way. But if you try to please them right away and come to them with, I've read your mind, they're going to resist that in the wrong way. Then, you know, if, if you come to them with, I made it like this because here's how I saw it, then they're going to think, hmm, that means on the page that it looks this way. Do I want it to look that way? Like it just creates a dialogue in a better way, I think, um, if you stay honest and you come to them with your vision of things to see if it aligns with theirs. And if it doesn't, you adjust. You have to be adaptable, though. That's the most important thing. You have to be adaptable. You can't ever assume that you are the best determiner of the visuals for the project because it is so highly collaborative. You have to assume that you are the guardian of the visuals for the project. You know, that's going to come from your set decorator. It's going to come from the DP. Even the actors at times are going to bring a visual element you didn't anticipate. And so you just really have to be almost like a watchdog in a way to make sure that it stays consistent, it stays cohesive, it stays believable. Authenticity is always there. And then let the chips fall where they may because nobody actually ever has any real control over film or TV. Nobody. They think they do. But what you originally plan to make and what you end up with are colossally different every time. Um, So just know that. Go with the flow a little bit. (laughs) Don't let anything get to your ego. That's the big part. Just don't let it get to you. Yeah, it sounds like a combination of being bold and also being Buddhist. Just yeah. ha- having no <laughs> having no attachments, but you've got to show up with a point of view. And again, you know, really putting the lens in preparing to to talk with you. It's like, man, I can't believe how many movies, watch thousands of movies, every apartment and house and office and restaurant over and over and over again. It must be really challenging to feel like here we are again. How do we make this specific, make this interesting, but not cross the line that it makes it about us? I feel like that that in itself is such an incredible uh, challenge and, and fun and exciting thing to do. It's, it must be rewarding in some ways when it works. It is. It's, it's the difficulty of differentiating, like, say, you know, how many times have I done a hallway in a high school or a teenager's bedroom? You know, like, I've done this a million times, but I can't come at it with, ugh, not another high school hallway with lockers. What I have to do is, okay, this high school, what's important here? What are the themes we're playing with here? Okay, it's the 80s. That's obvious. That helps us. You know, what's going to happen in this scene? How can I amplify that? part of it. And it may be as simple as what color are the lockers? It may be like, oh, there's a clock on the wall above her head. And that adds tension. Like it's simple little things sometimes, but always think about above all else, what is the scene about? Okay. And what about, it seems like it's 
a very common practice where the costume designer, art department, everyone sort of will assign a character of color palette, especially in Greg's projects. It's sure. very clear, you know, this is, <laughs> yeah. this guy is blue, you know, yeah. <laughs> he is red and pink, you know, it's all there. Is that an intuitive thing for you or is there an actual science when we talk about like the science of color and stuff? How do you discover that? Again, depends so much on the project and the situation, but uh, you know, there are general rules with color um, that hold true. Black, darks, you know, all of these colors that are, you know, that kind of hide things create unease. They create tension. You know, red creates uh, a vibrancy, a, a passion, um, an anger. Blues are more serene and calming. Like all of those things kind of hold true. But of course, sometimes you want to flip that around too. Like right. you don't necessarily want to be like going by what's obvious to everyone. When it comes to period pieces, so that that would be like glow. You've got scenes in both Adderall Adderall Diaries and mm-hmm. uh, White Bird in a Blizzard. What is the ratio between things you have to build? and things that you source. Are there certain periods of history that are easier to find things for than others? Yes, I would say the general rule is that the further back you go, the more complicated it becomes to find things and the more expensive. Um, like, you know, obviously doing a, a show that's set in the, the 80s has one set of challenges and then something that's in the 1880s, <laughs> that's a lot more complicated. Like every spoon is an item, you know, that has to be thought about carefully. Every everything. Whereas something like say the eighties or nineties, where that chair has actually something we would still now see nowadays, or Ikea made a lamp that looks exactly like the original lamp. And we can use that. It's fine. It's based on a sixties design. That's okay. Those things uh, become very complicated at times and other times become quite clear. I would say the general rule there is to look not at films that were recreations of those eras, but films from those eras. So like my main influence for, say, Glow, I went back and watched, like, say, Boogie Nights, which was a reenactment of a time period. And it was fabulous. It was beautifully done. I loved it. It was a great influence. But the most telling stuff that I found were films actually created in the 80s and TV shows created in the 80s, because that gave you a sense of the immediacy of what people saw then, not how we perceived the time period to be. Mm. So watch, like, say a hilarious, terrible thriller horror called Chopping Mall. And you really get a sense of what an 80s mall looks like, more so than, say, you would on watching Stranger Things, which is like dealing right. with all the references and like nostalgia. And it's, it's more like, hey, remember this and remember that? But you watch Chopping Mall, you're like, oh, wow, that's actually what it looked like. Oh, it was really hideous. <laughs> you know, and you're able to get uh, the information you need that you can't really find unless you go back to the source, unless you go back to that time period. I, it's so hard for people pre-photography. You know, they're dealing with paintings, they're dealing with etchings. That's quite a challenge and, and requires so much more complexity than something that we ourselves have already lived through and are familiar with. One day I'll take on one of those and I do look forward to it. I hope it's for Paul Thomas Anderson, actually. Yeah, <laughs> wow. You two would be a great blend. Let me ask you just one nerdy question when you have to show like some gnarly gnarly location like like someone's gross apartment or a disgusting alleyway what are what are the actual materials you're using to because i have just often wondered like what am i really putting my face on right now you know is it is it a mix of 
natural elements or is it like paints and other things? I actually had this conversation with Alison Bree and Glow um, where she had to do a pregnancy test in one of the bathrooms at a hotel that we created. Yes, that's kind of what I'm thinking. And of course, all what we do is we bring in a vintage toilet and sink and whatnot and completely spotlessly clean them like perfect and then go in with paint and wax and fake dirt and all these things to create fake rust. And then, so we call it a movie dirt. So it's not real dirt, it's movie dirt, it's okay. Because, you know, when you've got an actor who's got to sit for like two or three hours in a scene with her bare butt on a filthy toilet, she's going to be worried about this. You know, and I'm like, she wasn't. She's cool because Allie's awesome. But but she was like, um, is this? And I was like, it's all paint. It's all movie dark. She's like, okay, cool, cool, cool. But yeah, I mean, if you can actually get the actor to be worried about that, that means that the scenic artist did their job right. <laughs> Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, absolutely. I remember I had to do a play off off Broadway and I had to be totally naked and that we were supposed to be filthy and we didn't have makeup or anything like that. So the director just went out and got us like a straight up bag of miracle Grow, and we're like (laughs) backstage covering ourselves with miracle Grow every night and and they put like concrete like concrete powder you know mix all over the stage that we were inhaling and i was like there's got to be a better way (laughs) this cannot products that have disappeared over the years for that reason that were you know dangerous there's something called a fuller's earth and fuller's earth was used to like dust down a room like you know the script says somebody walks in they run their finger along a table it's dusty Okay, well, we need to see that on camera. So you go in with the duster. But that stuff, you know, turned out to be, of course, cancer-causing. So now there's different products that you use. Like, over the course of time, people have figured it out. I mean, I know you've heard about, like, Hamilton, the woman uh, who played the Wicked Witch of the West um, in Wizard of Oz, catching on fire because her green makeup was actually flammable, and they didn't know it. (laughs) You know, like... Or the Thin Man at that time uh, getting like horrible rashes because of the silver paint on him and like having to be recast. There's all kinds of stuff we've learned. We've learned to be safer, (laughs) finally. So what is dust now? Um, I'm trying to remember what it's called now. I think they still call it Fuller's Earth, you know, but it's not the same product. It's a different thing. It's basically vermiculite, usually organic materials, or it's made out of like paper that's ground really fine, wood that's ground really fine. They... You know, we try to keep it things about things that are not chemical based. Whew. Thank goodness. <laughs> I'm glad I asked about that. Yeah, I was really wondering. Um, well, Todd, thank you so, so much. This has been so fun. This has been such a gift, really. I, I feel so much more aware now, and I know that our listeners will too. Oh, I've had a great time, and I really appreciate you asking. And thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Todd. And wait, before you go anywhere, if you've been enjoying Movie Mentors podcast, feel free to show your love with us. It's a lot of work to put one of these bad boys together. So if you'd like to help us keep going, please consider a small contribution through the link on our Instagram and our Facebook page. Our Insta handle is at Movie Mentors Podcast, and there's a ton of great additional content and updates on there. So please follow us and consider supporting. Don't forget, you can always like, rate, share, and subscribe. We'd love to connect with you. I'd like to thank Gabe Sokoloff for the music, Todd Felstead for his wisdom, and all of you for giving us a listen. Take good care and stay healthy, everybody.